and welcome to this latest episode of The Month in VC, our regular podcast on the African venture capital space, brought to you in partnership with Catapult Africa, Haliastani Capital, and ARM Labs Lagos Techstars Accelerator. Every month, we catch you up on all the latest funds and investments news, introduce you to investors, and discuss key themes and trends. We hope you enjoy our latest episode. And as ever, if you have any suggestions for topics or want to get involved yourself, please don't hesitate to reach out. For now, let's catch up on all the latest funding news from the last month. start with the bad news in this so-called year of the reset. African tech startups raised just shy of $500 million in Q3 of this year, taking the total for the first nine months of the year to just under $1.5 billion. That's down 48% on the corresponding period in 2022. Unless there's a dramatic upturn then, it seems funding this year will be down by around half on last year. A reset indeed. New funds, however, herald good news, and a few of those have been announced recently. Pan-African VC firm Enza Capital announced the close of its $58 million Fund 2, while another Pan-African seed-focused VC firm, P1 Ventures, completed the first $25 million close of its own second fund. In addition, South Africa's Sesha Capital announced the first close of over $15 million of its second fund, while Catalyst Fund, a pre-seed VC fund and accelerator focused on driving climate resilience innovation in Africa, announced the successful first close of its targeted $40 million fund, with over 20% committed. The funding is there, which is good news. Two investments in startups then. Much of the developments this month came in South Africa, and in South African fintech to be precise. Payments API Stitch raised $25 million in a Series A extension round, while Revio, a payment orchestration platform that helps merchants optimise their order-to-cash lifecycle, banked over $5 million in seed funding. Insurance startup Root Platform raised $1.5 million. Ivory Coast-based e-commerce platform Anchor raised $5 million in extension funding to support the growth of thousands of small and women-led artisanal businesses strengthening Africa's creative industries and its growing online retail sector. Zambian Nia Bank Lupia banked eight and a quarter million in Series A funding to scale operations in its home market and in new ones. Nigeria wasn't to be left behind. Energy company Watt Renewable secured $13 million. Mesho Autotech, which provides quality automotive spare parts and vehicle repairs, closed a $2.4 million pre-Series A funding round. And Fixit 45, a leading player in the autotech aftermarket sector, raised $1.9 million in pre-seed funding. Meanwhile, cloud comm startup Senchamp has been acquired by HugoHost, West Africa's largest cloud infrastructure company. Ghana's Complete Pharma, an end-to-end digital agricultural marketplace that connects African farmers and global industries to competitive markets, resources, data and each other on a single platform, has raised a $10.4 million pre-series A round. In Kenya, fintech platform Leaper Later banked $3.4 million and tech-enabled insurance company Turaco acquired micro-insurance company MicroInsure Ghana to make the West African country its fourth market. There was also activity in Egypt, where direct-to-consumer digital-led home and decor brand Arika raised a Series A equity funding round. Fintech stars at MoneyHash banked funding from GitHub founder Tom Preston Werner, and health insurtech Sehatech banked $850,000. In each episode of The Month in VC... We hone in on one individual Africa-focused investor, learning about their background, their company, and how they make investments. This month, we caught up with Maya Horgan Famodu, founder of early-stage Africa-focused VC firm Ingressive Capital. Born in the US to a Nigerian father and an American mother, Maya grew up really poor in rural Minnesota. We struggled for the basics, and I was always invited to the gifted and talented programs um, 
but I wasn't able to participate because we didn't have funds to do so. And so I grew up knowing the feeling of when you have the capability to do something great and you have the desire to do something great, but something outside of your control is preventing you from do so, doing so. In my instance, it was the resources. And so that sort of was a driving factor um, through growing up is how do I unlock resources? Because I know I'm not the only one who's this hungry. A scholarship took her to college before she undertook a pre-law program at Cornell. She then worked briefly in private equity research before launching her first company. This was in 2003, and it was a $50 million Africa fund. And this is back before Africa was cool. So the questions from the investors were more like, can Africans read? How are they going to be developers if there's like such low literacy rates <laughs> instead of, you know, what was the most recent liquidity event or how much funding has come into the ecosystem this year? Fortunately, things have changed, but it was really hard back in the day. The fund was not especially successful, as Maya only had a few months of professional work experience, and it was before the Africa story really took off. So instead, she launched an advisory company, Ingressive. And the offer was, hey, investors, come to uh, Nigeria, come across Africa, I'll show you the ecosystems, I'll plug you into government, I'll uh, help you make connections with the local ecosystem and local venture capital firms, etc. And I'll help you make your first investment. And then it turns to, hey, technology companies, um, big tech, like we worked with GitHub and Figma and um, a number of others. It was, hey, uh, we will uh, introduce you to the ecosystem, support you doing market research, help you launch across the continent, help you run programs, et cetera, et cetera. And for some of our technology clients, we even ran their Africa strategy over. That lasted a few years and became profitable, allowing Ingressive to begin making angel investments in the tech space. Eventually, enough clients had enough confidence in Africa and the company that they invested in its first fund. And that's how the fund is really focused on, like our limited partners are really focused on later stage investors who have the capital to be able to do the follow-on rounds in our early stage portfolio companies. Because when we started, there weren't a whole lot of investors in the ecosystem and the offer was really, you know, we can do the pre-seed investing, but who's going to do the follow-on and also how are we going to realize liquidity? And so we really built it into our limited partner base, both how we'll, we'll realize liquidity uh, by, you know, passing these deals on and exiting through secondaries and also um, have a pipeline to growth stage investors who can take these companies on to exit. Ingressive then launched a non-profit to help train more Africans in tech skills before rolling out the Ingressive Fund 2, which is about to close. In all, across all its vehicles, the company has so far made 46 first check investments and it has followed on into about 20% of those so far. Fund one was a $10.2 million fund, and fund two uh, will be right around $50 million. Fund two will be worth around $50 million. But at what stage does Ingressive invest? So we target pre-seed and seed. Fund one was about 75% 5 million post-money valuation and below, and about 60% 2.5 million post-money valuation and below. So we do really early stage companies. Sometimes these are paper napkin. We have a small allocation for those sort of like moonshot paper napkin ideas, but mainly the, the bread and butter is the companies, their first, you know, six to 12 months of launch, they are generating some revenue or they have some sort of demonstration of product market fit. They're focused on a big market. They want to expand across the continent, but haven't yet. And uh, we're one of their first investors and they need assistance to raise from international capital sources. It invests in Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, Egypt and Morocco as its core five markets. 
Uh, we do opportunistically look elsewhere, but those are our core markets. And some of the things that we really pay attention to is um, we want to invest in companies that have similar per capita GDP. So between that, like 2000 and 3,500, we want to invest in company or in countries that have similar infrastructural issues so that companies can expand from one geography to, to another and sort of be solving the, sim- the same challenges. Uh, similar consumer demographic, uh, also similar rates of mobile penetration, at least 80% and above. We look for at least 50% and above internet penetration in the cities where we're actively investing. We also want to see there are uh, established technical universities that are pumping out higher ready talent. It's a big distinction. And a lot of African countries are still working on that one. Uh, we want to see a, uh, it being a key recipient or one of the fastest growth sector or growth geographies with regarding venture capital. So either it's a key recipient of venture capital in Africa or one of the fastest growing. Um, and then we also want to see demonstrated M&A activity. Like, can you really exit those positions? Uh, those are some of the things that we look for in the geography. When it comes to sector, it slightly differs per market. But the high level policy is that aggressive invests in GDP transforming technologies. So we look at B2B solutions that help an African nation own more of its value chain from resource extraction to end product sale. So that could be B2B financial services, that could be trade finance, that could be logistic solutions, that could be basic tech-enabled solutions for traditional industry to make these sort of extractive processes or movement of goods and services more efficient. And then on the B2C side, we're targeting this burgeoning, tech-enabled youth demographic. Of course, everyone knows the statistics about Africa, 1.2 billion people, the fastest growing populations in the world, the fastest growing GDPs, all all that great stuff. 75% under the age of 35, even half of Nigeria under 19, all great. And so you have this super, this very young population, this very fast growing population, very high rates of urbanization, tech enablement, internet um, penetration. And then within these communities, you now also have decentralized education. So almost 50% of the developers in the ecosystem are self-taught. That means even if you're living in a rural village with limited resources, you have access to the tech ecosystem on the continent. This represents extraordinary potential. And it is this that Ingressive is investing in. Though Maya said she loves all her babies equally, a few portfolio companies do stand out, primarily Paystack, which was actually Ingressive's first fund investment, alongside Carrier First, Bamboo, Mono and Jetstream, among others. Talking of Paystack, this was just one of three exits from Ingressive Fund 1, through which it did 26 first checks and 13 follow-on. With these 26 first checks, we've had three exits in companies so far. The first one was Paystack which obviously 100% of that sold for cash. And the second one was an East African fintech company. It's not public. And we we were given the option of shares or cash. We decided to take uh, shares in the parent company, which we're now owners and we're really excited about that. And uh, the third one was a private sale. So, and we have had offers for some of our um, high growth oversubscribed series A and series Bs of portfolio companies. We have had the opportunity to exit 100% of our shares through secondaries, which is our intended exit strategy. Because as I mentioned before, you know, 75% of fund one entry valuations were 5 million or below, 60%, 2.5 million or below. We come in very early. A number of our portfolio companies are like 1 million post money valuation, 1.5 million post money valuation. So even if they're getting to, you know, 50, 100 million series A, 150 million to 200 million series B, 
that could be a 200x return in our initial position. Ingressive then stops investing at Series A and then passes the investments along to its LPs, 80% of whom run the world's leading investment firms. Some of the funds, I I can't mention them all, but um, Alexis Ohanian's 776, we have Y Combinator, we have guys from Techstars, um, um, yes, a number number of other ones, and Foundry Group, if you know them, GGV, etc. And so our strategy, we do the pre-seed and seed, post-seed, Series A, pass those deals on to our limited partners, be able to exit from late Series A or Series B. Ingressive is an active investor and has a partner dedicated to portfolio support. Maya said the company's audits have proven its approach was appreciated by founders, and much of its deal flow comes from founder recommendations. The major benefits of an ingressive investment, aside from the cash, come from its network of LPs and the fact the whole team is made up of operators who can help startups with scaling. One thing likely to prevent startups from scaling in the next few months is the lack of liquidity. But in spite of the slowdown, Maya is still buoyant on Africa. You still have exploding populations. You still have fast-growing consumer demographic or consumer bases. You still have GDP expansion. And um, with that, yes, there may be a cutout of some of the fluff of people just building businesses to build businesses or to be in the ecosystem. Um, and some of these sort of drop-in, we call it helicopter investors who just drop in, you know, whatever the valuation is, whatever the amount, cool, great, let me do my first couple Africa deals and totally throw off this company's fundraising round and even the ecosystem and then drop out. We've seen now, you know, the capital I'm seeing increased rounds being backed by African investors. And what's really exciting is you have a bunch of well-funded VC funds on the continent, both in the early stage and the growth stage. So we can actually, the Africa-based and Africa-focused investors can now fund, which is something we haven't had in years past, can fund companies from the pre-seed to exit all within domestic capital. Of course, we want that nice combination of international capital with those potential acquirers, with um, potential liquidity sources later later stage, et cetera. But that is something that's really exciting to me. So even if there is a global contraction, and even the you know the big concern was if Silicon Valley stops funding Africa, you know if London stops funding Africa, what are we going to do? You know, in years past, it's been eighty percent of capital and uh, backing venture capital com- or eighty percent of the venture capital backing technology companies was from the abroad. <laughs> but now we're seeing those numbers really really shift. And then also domestic investors who've been around the block and who've been here, you know, our ecosystem's what, about a decade old? Like was here at the beginning about 10 years ago, maybe 12, 14 years old. We're finally seeing those who are seasoned enough to have both the technical expertise as well as the finance and the local market expertise. One benefit of the reset is that lessons will be learned around the need for ensuring African startups have proper compliance and financial reporting. In the news recently, we've had a number of cases of businesses who were not properly overseeing their financials or the sort of compliance element of their business. And that's because they found product market fit. They started scaling extremely extremely rapidly. They had some drop-in investors and some local investors come into the companies and um, just incorporate the typical, hey, send me your quarterly numbers. Hey, send me your, you know, whatever your core metrics are. And that's that. And there does need to be a development in the compliance and in the financial reporting of our, of the companies in our ecosystem, just like other ecosystems. So that is one thing that's been sort of a big shift this year is how do we set up the 
the important fund foundation from a compliance perspective, from a reporting perspective, from a just sort of thoughtfulness about the long-term trajectory of the business from that early stage and what key skills or what key talent do we need in companies from, or with, whether with within founders, like what do we need the founders to know or what do we need in the team from the beginning to make sure they're set up for success. Because it's not necessarily this nefarious activity and some something, you know, the founder doing bad things. It could just be them not having enough experience in scaling high growth companies that they were, that they are thoughtful about their burn, that they're thoughtful about their time to lights out, that they're thoughtful about what do I need to hold for reserves? What do I need to have? Um, or how do I need to structure my finance, my, my financials or my, my revenue model or et cetera, et cetera, or, or we're going to, we're about to hit a recession. How's this going to affect my consumer demographic, um, or my TAM? there then remaining buoyant on Africa in spite of the global slowdown, but sounding a note of caution when it comes to things like compliance to ensure founders learn the lessons of the reset. We look forward to reporting the news of the final close of Ingressive Fund 2 in the next few weeks. Now then, to the next part of this episode of The Month in VC. Every month, we touch on a certain key issue within the ecosystem, be that a key facet of the VC business model or an emerging trend. Today, we're talking VC business models and how they work so founders or indeed aspiring VCs can gain an understanding of how ultimately an investor hopes to make their money. We're doing that with the help of Muthoni Washira, advisor at Catapult Africa, and Matthew Palin, partner at South African VC firm Haliasani Capital, who have provided their wisdom on the subject. What is the classic venture capital business model? A traditional venture capital model is usually when we talk about legal structure first is is on based on an income and deity partnership structure. And essentially what that means is that you will have the people creating the fund um, are usually split into two entities, but they often the same or replica entities, and one would you would call the general partner and one you would call the fund manager. A partnership agreement comes into play here, where the general partner puts a little money in and goes out to find limited partners, who are the ones that really make the world go round. Why there's a distinction between the general partner and the limited partner is um, the general partner carries all the risk. So if anything goes materially wrong, the general partner is on the line for the the full amount, um, but a limited partner, you're only at risk of losing what you put into the partnership um, and no more. And then you have the fund manager, which is often the same as the, the general partner, and they, they have a management agreement with this um, income and deity partnership to run the fund and running the fund means looking for investments, making investments, providing the investment committee managing the investments over time and then ultimately exiting the investments. Here's my Sony. 
So the venture capital business model generally operates on a management fee and profit sharing business model. So limited partners who are essentially investors within the venture capital firm pay an annual fee for the team to manage that capital and deploy it, um, look after the portfolio, nurture it and exit, uh, giving them a return. And on the profit sharing aspect, they then split upside with the venture capital. So the the venture capital uh, firm gets compensated um, through a profit sharing model at the end of the fund. Here, we're talking about the two and 20 model. When it comes to the business model, it's structured on what is really globally standard, a, a two and 20 model. And what that means, the two stands for 2% management fee, which means you can draw down 2% of your total capital to be used as operational costs for managing the fund. And so here, the fund manager, if you have a 100 million rand fund, the fund manager can go to the investors say and say, 2% of that, um, please put into our management account for us to run uh, the business for OPEX. What is the 20 then? The 20 in the 2 and 20 model stand is for 20%. Usually, and this is what um, most fund managers are really incentivized uh, by, is this 20%, which is they get 20% of the profit at the end of the, fu- of the fund. So once a, um, a, a fund has paid back, firstly, all the capital, then all of the management fees that it's drawn down, and then it um, shares in 20% of the profit. So 80% will go to those LPs split proportionately and the fund manager in its GP will get 20% of the profit. Management fees versus carry can vary, but removing them altogether would be unusual. So I've seen a diverse range of management fees. I've seen funds that charge no management fee um, and more carry, which is a profit sharing element of the business model. Uh, but typically the range is from 1.5 to 2.5. Some would say 2% is the norm, but I've seen it go up to 4%. So the benefit of not charging a management fee, well, you'd have to, as a team, as a fund management team, uh, you'd have to have other sources of income to support that. But what that allows is for some um for more capital to go to be deployed, obviously because you're not getting the management fee aspect, but it is also favorable for uh, some limited partners who would rather align better with the ultimate outcome of the fund. It's something I've actually thought about and uh, I'd love one day when our uh, funds have been hugely successful and um, us as a fund manager have have, um, made good returns from for our investors and for ourselves that one day we can actually create a, a fee-less fund. Um, but to do that, it means that we would have to be financially supporting the entire fund management, which means um, we would have to be paying all of those salaries and all of those costs on risk. Um, but but I think, you know, if, if it could be done, that would be a great way to do it. Um, but it would require capital. I mean, you would, you would need a, a significant amount chunk of money to, to do that on risk. Um, and, and, you know, then you would have to say, is it actually fair that the general partner and the fund manager, one is doing all the work, but two is carrying all the risk 
um, and now three is carrying all the costs as well for the benefits of the limited partners. So in that world where you were doing a fee-less fund, I would think that you would have to make up for it for a higher percentage carry. So if you were moving away from the two and 20 model and you did a zero and maybe 30 or 40, and then it becomes, you know, um, a difficult, difficult conversation for the, with the LPs, um, to try and take a, a bigger chunk of the, the profits at the end of the day. It's usually a requirement for GPs to put their own capital or capital equivalent into a fund to align their interests with the LPs. So capital equivalent could be investments that they've made on their own money and they're rolling them into the fund and that can come at costs or at market rates. Um, but typically if, it, if you're talking about a cash contribution, this again ranges from around 0.5% to 2%, sometimes upwards of 3 to 4%. Um, and that ensures that there's aligned interest between all parties. So everyone puts cash in. But what is carry or carried interest? It's a performance-based structure in VC that rewards GPs for the returns they generate from the funds they manage. So basically, limited partners, uh, way of saying that, look, after you return my money and something on top, uh, which is called the hurdle rate, uh, then we'll share the profits with you. Typically, this is around 20% uh, goes to the venture capital team. Then the venture capital team will divvy that up between the partners uh, and other members of the team also get to participate in the profit. So it allows the fund management team to stay for the long haul, um, identify winners in, in startups, give them the right amount, the right support uh, so they can grow and identify uh, avenues of exit, whether it's structured or secondaries. Lifetimes of VC funds can vary between five-year funds and even permanent vehicle structures, though those are unusual. The typical lifetime for a fund is 10 years and can be extended by another two years if needed. So typically 10 plus two is what you'll see. Uh, permanent vehicle structures um, have no lifetime and that allows LPs to come and participate over that lifetime. Uh, shorter funds, smaller, I mean, shorter lifetime funds allow for uh, for proof points. I think with the typical structure, and especially if you look at the Africa context, you're saying, how long will it, will it take you to deploy that capital? So for instance, uh, three to four years is the time that it takes to deploy capital. And then after that is the harvest period. So harvest period is how long will it take for you to then nurture that those startups that you've invested in and find exit opportunities for them. Um, and that's it, another five, six, seven year. So looking at that then gives you a 10 plus two year life cycle. That is what we typically find. Essentially, when it comes to it, startups and VCs are the same. There'll be more on that next week. Yes, um, it is. It is quite funny. I mean, I've had that comment to me where, you know, a company's pitching to us and they, they say, oh, it's so easy for you. You know, you have all the money and you just have to sit there and spend it. And when in actual fact, you know, our life revolves around actually raising money. I, we pitch, you know, every day almost. <laughs> we trying to raise money and get money into our funds. Um, so, so, I mean, a big part of our job is actually um, raising funding and trying to find money.
valuable learnings there on how VC firms work and the structures they employ to make returns for their LPs. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Month in VC, brought to you by Disrupt Africa in partnership with Catapult Africa, Halaya Sani Capital, and ARM Labs Lagos Textiles Accelerator. We'll see you next time. Bye.